Well, thank you for having me here. I got a message from a friend who was supposed to be coming and his wife instead wanted to uh, go to a marriage seminar on a Friday night. And I said to him, I can tell you a lot about marriage tonight uh, when we talk about sin. Uh, He quite agreed, but uh, evidently he uh, chose uh, to go the other way, and uh, our thoughts are with him, mine are at least. It is interesting that on a Friday night you are here listening to a talk or two talks on sin, which means you're either crazy or really holy, uh, or some combination of the two. But it is a bit daunting for me. After writing a book on knowing sin, you invariably get these uh, requests to speak at places and maybe do podcasts. And um, you, t- you tend to think that nobody really wants to talk about sin. And yet I found to my surprise that a great deal, many people have uh, not only bought the book, but seem interested in the doctrine of sin. And I'm not going to tell you, which you may hear at conferences, if there was a conference on holiness, you would hear perhaps the following um, This usually happens at a mega conference. What is the greatest problem in the church today? And the conference is on holiness. And they'll say, well, we've lost the concept of God's holiness. And everyone's nodding their head and going, yes, that's the problem. Uh, And then there's a conference on scripture. And then what is the greatest problem in the church today? Well, uh, people just don't believe God's word anymore. So what is the greatest problem in the church today? I'm not going to tell you that we've lost the proper biblical understanding of sin. But I will say this, it is a problem. It may not be the greatest problem, I have no way of knowing that, but it is a problem insofar as we do not hear preaching that I think cuts to the heart of the human psyche, the soul Uh, the specific sins that we need to be confronted with. Sin is very generic, and the average evangelical will uh, have no problem saying, yes, I'm a sinner, but it is a very different thing when uh, you have to deal with your specific sins. Are you a proud person? Uh, Are you haughty? Do you have a problem with covetousness? And therein becomes the issues where we strike back, so to speak. Uh, So I do think sin is an important topic. I commend you for spending your evening here hoping to learn more of sin. And as I uh, have said at the very beginning of the book, that whenever you find great displays of God's grace to his people, it is usually in the context of great displays of our sin. You can look at the chapters in Exodus chapter 30 and onwards, or even Psalm 51, and there you have examples. So you cannot lose when you come to hear the doctrine of sin so long as it is spoken of in its proper biblical context. You cannot lose. You can only gain tonight, and that is my hope. And so uh, what we're going to be looking at tonight, firstly, is a sort of um, contextual look at sin, what it is, where it came from, its nature, and then as we sort of provide the foundation, in the second talk we'll be looking at a more specific question of temptation 
and specifically in relation to uh, sexual temptation and uh, what I have come across in my travels all over the world and indeed in my own church, uh, uh, a very wrong-headed idea that I hope that we can dispel at least tonight in our own midst. So uh, why should you be here? Uh, not only to learn of your sin, but to learn of God's grace. And I am indebted to the Puritans. They have some amazing one-liners. I tend to think 95% of theologians should not do Twitter, but there are some Puritans that would have been very good. And Luther, he'd probably get kicked off actually after a day, but um, they, they have this way of using language and words So to be merciful to sin is to be cruel to yourself. And you think of how they put things memorably like that. And I have this uh, Puritan, nobody knows really who he is. His name is Ralph Benning. Some of you may know of him, but he says that many who feel the pain which sin brought are not aware of the sin which brought the pain. They see the pain all around them. They see it in society. They see it in their families, in their lives, but they don't really know the fountain of that pain and from where it came. And so we're going to look at that tonight first. Where did sin come from? Now, the serpent appears in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and his appearance is quite surprising when you think about it because Not long before that, God has declared everything in his creation to be very good. And then someone who is decidedly not very good appears in this very good creation. And what we find out about the serpent is that he is a liar, he is a murderer, and then in chapter 3 you find out that he's also cursed. And the reason I draw attention to those three aspects of the serpent is for this reason. If you read chapter 4 and you look at the story of Cain, he is a liar, he is a murderer, and he is cursed. And when you see the serpent, you start to see as the fall takes place and the descendants of sinners start to manifest throughout the world, they take on the characteristics of of their father, the devil, which is what Christ chastises the Pharisees for. You are of your father, the devil. Now, the serpent is like Cain. Cain is like the serpent. So when you look at later references in the Bible, there are two particularly well-known ones. One is in Ezekiel chapter 28, the proud king of Tyre. And people go, is he speaking of, of Satan's fall or this proud king? Or in Isaiah chapter 14 is the fallen king of Babylon. And so people will debate, is this speaking about the actual king or is this a reference to Satan in a poetic way of speaking? And when you see the Cain serpent parallels, you don't need to really concern yourself with whether it is one or the other, but to say that we can learn a lot about Satan from some of the descriptions used of sinful mankind because that is where they get their character from. And we can learn a lot about mankind from Satan because ultimately he is their father. So what were the reasons that Satan fell? This has been a question that has consumed theologians for many, many years. Jude actually says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority 
but left their proper dwelling. So in the history of Christian interpretation, one of the big issues in terms of Satan's original fall from grace, where he was a perfect angel, concerns authority. What was it about God's authority that Satan set himself against God? And that is an important question. In fact, Anselm wrote a book on the fall of Satan. And he basically said that Satan set his will against God's will to try and be God's equal. And so connected with the lack of authority for who God is was the issue of pride. And that is why Paul will say of someone who is to be an elder, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So the devil wanting to be like God, the devil with pride produces offspring like himself. But he also then wants others to commit the same sins that he committed. So remember in the temptation when Jesus is in the wilderness, what does he want Jesus to do? He wants him to worship him. He wants Jesus to bow down to the devil. The devil wanted that in his fall. He wanted equality with God. He wanted God's glory. And so when it came to tempting Jesus, he was attempting to get what he originally wanted. And so it was an issue of authority and it was an issue of pride. And when you think about it, all other sins stem from those basic sins. That helps us to then understand the fall of Adam. When you see that it's not so simplistic to say that he fell because of this or that, you can ask yourself, what was the specific transgression of Adam against God's law in the garden? So you know the rule was that you should not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. But what specific commandment did Adam break? If you just think about it right now, in your mind, of the Ten Commandments, how many commandments do you think Adam broke in the garden? And I think the answer is all ten. And I think you can prove that, which will help you to understand the nature of sin. There is no such thing as a small sin. There is no such thing as an indifferent sin. And it's very rarely the case that one sin is ever just one sin but actually a culmination of vices and transgressions against God's law. So, for example, his unbelief, and Reformed theologians have typically said that unbelief is the first and worst sin, that Adam stopped believing God's word. And so it was unbelief. This unbelief revealed a type of self-love, a type of self-seeking, a type of self-promotion, And these are violations of the first commandment. Also, as prophet, priest, and king of God's garden temple, which is what Eden was, Adam was bound to worship God in a specific manner, which includes what he should and should not do. And so he did not love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Also, by eating from the forbidden tree, he transgressed proper worship laws. Remember, Adam 
was a worshiping creature. He was given a specific law concerning how to worship God. And so he tolerated false religion in the temple and did not, as the guardian of the temple, destroy the serpent. He should have cut off his head, so to speak. He should have kicked him out of the temple. But he allowed false worship into the temple. He allowed a lie about God. And so he broke the second commandment. Now remember, Adam was also called God's son. And as God's image-bearing son, he was obligated to bring glory and honor to his father through his holy living. And so by failing to revere the engraved word of God on his heart and also the words that God spoke to him directly, this was a violation of the third commandment. He was taking the name of the Lord in vain because he was not living as a true son of God. To take the name of the Lord in vain is not to just say the words Jesus Christ in a bad way, as many think. It is to not live as one made in his image, appropriate to that image. And being God's son, he violated the third commandment. The fourth commandment is the Sabbath. Now, how did he break that? Well, remember, the Sabbath in Hebrews 3 and 4 is a pointer to an eternal rest, to many days. And so by breaking the law that was given to him, not only did he jeopardize his own Sabbath rest, where the author of Hebrews says, make every effort to enter God's Sabbath rest, Adam had a duty to make every effort to enter God's rest. And he jeopardized our rest and his rest by breaking the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment, I think, is quite obvious. Instead of obeying his father, and remember in Luke's gospel, Adam is called God's son. He did not obey his father. He failed to honor him. And what was the promise that is offered in the fifth commandment? that you may live long days. He forfeited his long days in the garden as God's son. The sixth commandment is you shall not kill. And Paul speaks very clearly to the fact that Adam brought death into the world because death came through sin. And so death came to all men because all sinned. And this is a result of Adam's transgression. He is a type of murderer. The seventh commandment maybe is a little bit more tricky. You're thinking, hang on now, this is where your nice little uh, eloquent run through the Ten Commandments is going to come crumbling down. Um, Well, maybe not. I hope not. Because you will know that when Adam was there with his wife, that he had an obligation as the head of the household, to protect his wife from spiritual harm. The seventh commandment is not just the negative, do not commit adultery, but it is the positive. You are to love your wife. And love includes, in the gospel as I see it, protection, care, and self-giving. He did not love his wife when his wife needed his love the most as she was duped by Satan. The eighth commandment is you shall not steal and by taking what was not rightfully theirs they stole from God. The ninth commandment is 
about truth-telling, not bearing false testimony. And so not only do we have an obligation as Christians to not lie, but we have an obligation to speak the truth. And when Satan spoke a lie about God, Adam had a responsibility to correct him and speak the truth about God's goodness and not allow God to look like a miser, as someone who hated them. And then finally, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Naturally, they coveted that which was not theirs to covet. God had not given them yet what they were tempted to receive. And so you see how serious Adam's sin in the beginning was? It was not, well, you know, one day they came by, there was this sneaky serpent, he got them. It was a small little thing, let bygones be bygones. It was a sin that broke every commandment in God's law and shows how serious sin usually is. When you think of sins that somebody commits or you commit, you can usually tie in several sins that not only led to the committing of that sin, but actually were present in the committing of the sin. Now we can ask ourselves a question. If Adam was created good, why would he choose evil? I wish I were able to give you the full answer. And the longer I've studied this topic, the more I've read theologians over the ages, the more we do come to a conclusion whereby there isn't actually an answer. Now, there were some in the Christian tradition, the Socinians, they were heretics, the Pelagians, they were also um, interesting folks. Um, the Arminians, uh, they, they had a few errors, uh, I can say that. And in fact, where Arminius first started to change his views from being a Reformed theologian was when he changed his view on Romans chapter 7. And in fact, the big debate between Arminians and Reformed in the 17th century was actually over the doctrine of justification, not over things like predestination. Those things eventually started getting debated, but the Arminians actually believed, so did the Socinians, that Adam had an inclination towards vice so that it made sense that given the right context, he would choose evil. The Reformed did not believe that Adam had an inclination towards vice. They prefer to say that God made Adam good, but God did not give Adam the grace of perseverance in the garden. God was fair with Adam, Many even said God was gracious to Adam because he gave him the Holy Spirit in which to be able to love him and obey him. But they do not believe that Adam was given the grace of perseverance that kept him from sinning. There was still the freedom of his will, which in the mystery of God's purposes, uh, Adam could, with the right context, sin. Now, we don't really know anything else except to say that the internal cause of Adam's sin was his own free will, but the external cause of Adam's sin was the cunning serpent. Thomas Watson, highly recommend him for people entering into Puritan studies and want someone who's not going to freak them out. Uh, He says, the devil could not have forced him unless he had given consent Satan was only a suitor to woo, not a king to compel. So the blame does lie with Adam, but we still recognize there was an external cause, Satan. And I think it's important to recognize this about sin. We are always responsible for our sin, but there may be external causes that do 
bring out sin in a way that would not happen. And you can think about how maybe you're not impressed when your children uh, point almost always to the external cause. Uh, Very rarely do they point to the internal cause. Uh, We are a little more sophisticated and uh, we point to external causes and admit internal causes, but I think any true Christian can say, yes, ultimately the blame lies with me, I am the sinner, but we can confess that there are external causes as to why we may or may not do certain things. Would somebody struggle with covetousness or lust or other types of sins in one context more than in another context? And that is a question you can apply to yourself. Now, there was something good about the fall, not in the actual sin itself, but in what uh, theologians have called Felix culpa. It means happy guilt. And happy guilt is this idea that uh, as this response to evil, God was able to bring out a type of greater goodness as a result of the fall. So sin does its worst, but God always does his best because he can only do his best. And so we do get the idea that with sin and God's gracious provision in response to sin, some of the attributes of God would have remained hidden in the deity had not sin taken place. So while we say sin is evil, we look at the happy guilt, so to speak, whereby the mercy of God or the long-suffering patience of God is revealed to us creatures as a result of sin. In fact, John Owen says, the greatest evil in the world is sin. And the greatest sin was the first And yet Gregory, early church father, feared not to cry, O happy fault, which found such a redeemer. There were other theologians, John Rabbi Duncan and Samuel Rutherford, and they speak in a certain sense like Owen. The permission of sin is adorable. The actual fact of sin is abominable. So what they mean is, as to the permission there would certainly have been no display of some of the divine attributes if sin had not been. They would have been conserved forever in the depths of the adorable Godhead. So what we have gained actually in Christ is far greater than what we would have gained in Adam had he not fallen. In fact, I would say that the beatific vision, the vision one day that we will have when we see Christ as a man looks upon his neighbor, the ocular vision with our own eyes and as we're transformed into his glory by the very appearance of his transforming glory, that is a greater gift. In fact, the greatest gift God can give to us to be exactly conformed to the image of his son, which is a result of the redemption that came through the forgiveness of sins. And so while the fall is in some respects inexplicable to us as to why it would happen, we glory in what God brought about because it happened. So what happened? Well, we uh, have a doctrine called original sin. Uh, This is famously goes back to St. Augustine, but 
Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, I'm no expert, so other than this quote, please no questions on anything to do with Lord of the Rings. I don't have time for TV except watching English football and screaming at my television when my team loses. So in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, uh, fearful of the power of the ring over him and knowing how it affected his ancestor Isildur, uh, hears Arwen say to him, why do you fear the past? You are Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. You are not bound to his fate. And Aragorn responds, the same blood flows in my veins, the same weakness. And so he understands something of the power of original sin in a sense. This is the idea. The same blood flows in all of our veins. The best of men, the best of women, are men at best, are women at best. We know we all have a certain limit in these bodies because of indwelling sin and also because of original sin. Now, that means that because of original sin, we become idolaters. And every sin is antinomianism. Every sin is against God's law. Charnock says every sin is a secret atheism. It's not really believing that God exists. In fact, Charnock says every sin is an implicit adoration of Satan. It may not be explicit, but it's an implicit adoration of Satan. And so because of Adam's sin, we are uh, moral and physical beings, and so morally and physically we are affected by sin. We are guilty and we are polluted. And in terms of the physical effects of sin, it was called by the old theologians the, the death of disaster. So when God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die, there are a number of ways in which death was understood, and they called the death of disaster. I, I quite like that phrase, the death of disaster, but I don't like the effects. The death of disaster is anything that you see around you, anything that's physical. You see uh, not only people um, being sick and ill, but you see wars and famines and everything like that is the death of disaster. But then there's the internal aspect of sin, the spiritual consequences, the pollution that is within our souls. And so we say, in one respect, the image of God was lost, but in another respect, it was not lost altogether. So are we made in the image of God? That's an interesting question. Uh, our old theologians would make the following point, that narrowly considered, we lost the image of God. So we are not made in the image of God like Adam was. We are not by nature God's son. But there are still remnants of that image in us so that we can still say we are, generally speaking, still in the image of God, but not perfectly speaking in the image of God. That is why in Genesis 9, the death penalty is, is issued because man is made in the image of God. Or James speaks about how we curse those with our tongues, those who are made in God's image. And so are we in, made in God's image? Yes, but are we made in the image of God perfectly like Adam was without sin? No. So you just have to clarify what is meant by that. But we have polluted hearts. In fact, Thomas Watson says, our heart is the devil's shop where all mischief is framed. And so when you go to Psalm 51, the adulterous and murderous David recognizes 
his sins by going to the root of the issue. Have you ever wondered why in Psalm 51, David doesn't actually say, I committed adultery with Bathsheba. I tried to have Uriah killed and succeeded and speaks about his sins in that way. He actually, in a certain sense, gets to a much more fundamental problem than that he committed adultery or that he murdered a man. He gets to the very core of his being and reveals that he is, by nature, a moral pervert. And that the only solution to his problem is not that God would make the sin with Bathsheba go away, the sin with Uriah go away, but that God would wash him, that God would cleanse him, that God would give him a new heart. Because if God does not give him a new heart, there will be a thousand Bathshebas, a thousand Uriahs. And so David gets to the core of the problem. There are also other very vivid descriptions of mankind's sin as a result of original sin. You will well remember in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8, there's almost a similar repetition. And John Murray, one of my favorite uh, theologians, I I think that's okay to say here, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, He has this point about sin's contagion. He says, there is intensity The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Sin has an intensity. There is inwardness, the imagination of the thoughts of the heart. So it goes right to the internal core of our being. An expression, he says, unsurpassed in the usage of scripture to indicate that the most rudimentary movement of thought was evil in all mankind. There is totality, every imagination, every imagination. There is constancy, continually, every imagination, continually, is evil. And there is exclusiveness, only evil. Every imagination is always only evil. And there is early manifestation, because in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, he actually adds from his youth. So in the beginning in chapter 6, the imagination of man's heart's only evil continually and then it's added from his youth because that's really the issue. We are born in sin. So then what is sin? And this, I think, is probably where uh, you get to uh, a slightly higher theological level, if, if you can even say that, because I don't think we really know what sin is. And I hope this will be clear, but it's not an alien substance that enters us. That's the first thing for you to know. It's not something like a poison that you drink and so it goes into your body and now all of a sudden you're a sinner. Um, It's not actually of the essence of human nature. So the way in which God created Adam He did not create him a sinner. So the essence of human nature, you can be a true human being without sin. Sin isn't required for you to be a human being. Now, of course, it has entered because of Adam's fall, but it's not necessary to your existence. There are two ways that theologians have spoken about sin. The first is called privation. Privation is the absence of a quality that is normally present. So an absence of righteousness The second thing 
is called positive inclination. And positive inclination is not like a morally good thing. Positive inclination is basically the idea that we do bad things all the time. So privation is a lack of righteousness. Positive inclination is a tendency to commit evil. So Thomas Goodwin will say sin is first a total and utter emptiness and privation of all that righteousness and true holiness which God created in man. Remember God created Adam in true righteousness and holiness? We lack that now. That's privation. And secondly, a positive sinful inclination to all that is contrary to grace, namely a proneness to all sin, which the law of God forbids. So we have inordinate fleshly lusts now. We have enmity towards God. And so the Christian ethic is not merely avoiding evil but doing good. But that's our problem. So you can't just say, well, I'm not going to do bad things today. When I was a young man, I asked Jesus into my heart a whole bunch of times. It didn't work. I don't know if it didn't work. I, I, I actually don't know that. I don't think it worked. And one day I woke up and I said, you know what? Today's the day I am not going to sin. I am actually going to go through just today not sinning. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to be a, the greatest human being ever. I limited it to one day. And I think an hour later, I must have lied or swore, and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to start again tomorrow. But you see, I had a faulty understanding because not only was I insanely stupid at that point in my life, I also didn't understand that it wasn't enough to simply not sin, to go, you know, put myself in a corner and not go out. The Christian ethic is actually you do not sin, but you also live righteously. So what does sin do? Sin is a privation. It robs us of the righteousness that God desires, but then instead of doing what is right, we do what is wrong. There's no neutrality in terms of the working of a Christian. We are either doing what is pleasing to God or what is displeasing to God. Herman Bavink said, sin accordingly has to be understood and described neither as an existing thing, nor as a being in things that exist, but rather a defect, a deprivation, an absence of the good, a weakness, imbalance, just as blindness is the deprivation of sight. It isn't an alien substance. It is simply a lack of something that God has created in us. And it is, in a sense, nothing. Jeremiah Burroughs said, all things that have a being, there is some good in them. For God has a being, and everything that has a being has some good in it because it is of God. But sin is a non-entity. So anything that God's created has some good in it. Even a creature who is an unbeliever has some good in that creature because it's a creation of God in so far as God's imprint is upon that creature the mountains, the oceans, everything. But sin is a non-entity, a non-being, because there's nothing good in sin. It's rather the deprivation of a being than any being at all. And that which is a non-entity in itself yet should have such a mighty efficacy to trouble heaven and earth. It has no being, and yet it is the cause of all mischief, all trouble in this world. 
You could maybe think of a man with a broken leg trying to make his way to the hospital after a terrible accident. And what sin is, is like the break, is it, it keeps us from functioning as we ought. Does he still have his leg? Is the bone still there? Yes. But there's a deformity in our being, a lack, that keeps us from living as we ought. And Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9 is a pretty good descriptor of this problem because it highlights, for while we were still weak, that's our problem, we're weak. We have no strength in us. Some of you have probably been at some point in your life extremely ill. I'm never going back to Hong Kong, by the way. Uh, fitted suits and all at a good price. I'm never going back there. I was so sick once, I basically crawled onto the plane, and even that was a miracle, and getting home and all the rest. But as I lay there thinking I was dying, I was still who I was, Mark, no different than I am now standing. But I had a lack of strength, a lack of power, that inability to get up and walk, that inability to eat. That's what sin does to us. It robs us of our ability to actually think straight, walk properly, understand, and do anything in terms of our moral abilities. It is a weakness. And so it is a major ethical problem. Now, There's something else that's also important about sin, not just privation, the lack of righteousness and positive inclination, the tendency to commit evil, but sin actually is a parasite of the good. So sin needed good for its expression. Without the good, it has no power. And it only exists by and in connection with the good. So Satan was a holy angel before he became evil. Adam was a holy and righteous being before he became a sinner. And so sin borrows from the good, not from some independent evil that exists. It actually borrows from the good. And so Adam did not stop loving or desiring. Adam was a loving creature, a desiring creature when God made him. Sin doesn't in a certain sense change the fact that Adam loves and desires. Sin distorts what Adam loves and what he desires. It borrows from that desire. The desire is good. The love that he possesses is good, but guess what sin does? It warps and defaces those things that are good. And you see this in a lot of our own actions is that uh, competitiveness is actually a good thing. The world functions because there's some competitiveness. In fact, it's a Christian virtue, competitiveness. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Well, how do you outdo the other person unless you show some sort of competitiveness? And I can get crazy, of course, and you open the door, and no, you go in, no, no, you go in, no, no, you go in. No, I'm trying to, see, I'm trying to outdo you in showing honor. I don't think we ever have that problem in church. But the problem isn't competitiveness. The problem isn't desire. The problem isn't our nature because grace is not opposed to nature. Our problem is that sin takes our desire. 
It takes the gifts and qualities that make us who we are and it channels them in the wrong direction. Do we love our children? Yes. Is our love for children sometimes mixed with self-indulgent principles? Yes. So the love is not the issue. It's the way in which the love is expressed. And so... Bavink says, substantially, sin has neither removed anything from humanity nor introduced anything into it. It is the same human person, but now walking not toward God, but away from him to destruction. So just wrapping up by way of uh, application and channeling Bavink a little more because I think he's really good on this. He says that sin is basically a mystery that we cannot understand, but we must acknowledge We don't know when it emerged or what it is. It exists, but it actually has no right to his existence. It came into the world without motivation. Adam, in a sense, wasn't wanting to sin one day and thinking it'd be so nice to sin. But it's now the motivation for all human thought and actions by nature. From an abstract point of view, It is nothing but a privation. But concretely, it's a power that controls everyone. It has no independent principle of its own, as I've said, and yet it's the principle that devastates the whole creation. It lives off the good, yet it fights to the point of destruction. It feeds off the good in order to destroy it. It is nothing It has nothing and cannot do anything without the entities and forces that God has actually created. And yet it organizes all of these things in rebellion against God, a good God who has created all things good. Sin takes all of these good things and basically turns them back upon God in rebellion. And that is why we are by nature enmity Against God. It is the greatest contradiction tolerated by God in His creation. Yet it is used by Him in a way of justice and righteousness as an instrument for His glory, that God cannot be defeated by sin. That is why you probably heard the well known phrase from Richard Sibbs there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you, because sin cannot beat God. Sin cannot outmaneuver God. Sin will be finally destroyed by God. And so in his implacable hatred towards Christ, he sought to have him killed, Satan. And yet it was Christ's death that defeated Satan. Satan does his worst, God does his best. You remember Churchill to Hitler? You do your worst and we will do our best. Sin does its worst, God does his best. And in his infinite wisdom, he can even take our sin and use it for our good and his glory. A lot of times our conversions arise out of sinful situations, and yet God does it to destroy the works of the devil. Luther has that saying about faith. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. But actually, so is sin. There was a man who always had a nice thing to say about someone. 
And people wanted to try and, you know, get him tricked because he always had something nice to say. You know, you need such a person in your life who always sees the positive in someone. I don't think I could handle too many of these people, to be honest, but one is good. I have one elder like that. (laughs) If I had two elders like that, I'd resign. But one, he sees the positive. So you could ask such a person, you know, ah, yes, you have something nice to say about everyone, but what about the devil? And as the story I've heard goes, the person responds, he doesn't have a lazy bone in his body. And of course it is a wicked, lazy, a wicked, hard-working devil. But the point is, sin is a busy thing. Satan is a busy thing. It is mighty. It is active. And it requires the very best that only God can give to deal with it. I'll close with this quote from John Bunyan and then my own rephrasing of it in a positive sense. He says, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. But I thought it would be better to finish with a positive note. Christ is the satisfaction of God's justice, the crown of his mercy, the arm of his patience, the effusion of his power, and the face of his love. Sin does its worst, but God does his best. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this look at sin and We thank you that in our look at this horrible, horrible, destructive force that we cannot make sense of and do not know how it came to be, where it came to be from, we don't need to worry if we are in Christ, for he has overcome that all sin can offer. And so we pray that we may remember that. For Jesus' sake, amen.